0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. For the past several weeks, we have been working through um, St. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, we saw that he wrote this letter from a Roman prison sometime around the year 60 or 62 A.D. Moreover, through the contents of the letter, we found that Paul was in prison um, facing what was likely to be an execution. He knew that he was going to die. When he uh, came to trial before Nero, I also mentioned, as we worked through that, that the city of Philippi was located in the northern part of Greece, what we would call Macedonia. Um, and it was one of the very first Christian communities in Europe ever. Um, Paul had gone across, and this was one of, one of the earliest places that he reached as he moved from Asia into Europe. Um, the, uh, the city of, uh, of Philippi and the church that was in there very special to Paul, and you can tell this throughout the course of the letter, as it turns out, the city of Thessalonica is just about, or Thessaloniki as they would say today, is only about 100 miles south-southwest from, um, from Philippi. And if you were to go through the book of Acts, you could sort of trace Paul's missionary journeys as he goes from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Um, the city of Thessalonica was more prominent than Philippi in terms of its Roman um, prominence, so its prominence as a, as a Roman colony it was um, it's sort of like uh, the way we might look at Parma or Strongsville or even, Paris the thought, Hudson in comparison to Cleveland. You know, it would be a, a more prominent city, Cleveland, than, than ours. Not more important, just more prominent in terms of its, its political uh, position. One of the big differences, though, between the Philippian letter and the Thessalonian letters, the, the two that we have in the New Testament, have to do with time and location. Same author, basically same geography same culture, just that the Thessalonian letters were written about 10 or 12 years earlier than the Philippian letter. So Paul is not in prison. He writes from the city of Corinth down in the southern part of Greece back to the, uh, to Thessalonica. As we launch into this letter, though, and uh, begin this new kind of look at, we're moving from Philippians to 1 Thessalonians, um, as we look at this letter, I think that one of the things that we'll notice is that if we look at it Um, A little differently because it's biblical literature, because it's in the Bible, it suddenly becomes something different than what it is, which is a letter. It's an ancient letter. It was written from a missionary pastor to a church in a city um, that continues the city to this very day. But if you're looking at someone's old mail, um, you have to sort of determine, like, who wrote the letter, right, and and to whom was it written, and we can discover that pretty quickly. And then why did the author write this? Why did she or he write a letter, in this case he? Why did Paul write this? And I think that, as I said, because it's biblical literature, all of a sudden we, we stop reading it the way we would any other letter. So I kind of came up with a scenario. I want you to imagine this one with me, okay? Um, you're at someone's house. Um, who is? Um, how shall we say, a very vintage person? You know, they're they're a little bit up there in years. All right, you know what I'm talking about, right? So you're going to your friend's house, um, and uh, and maybe you have this person in mind. Um, um, let's call her Mildred. Um, you're, you go to Mildred's house, and for some reason, you find yourself up in Mildred's attic, rifling through old um, footlockers, right? Um, you know that Mildred was married for many years to, let's say, William. You know, William was her name, and so you know about Mildred and William, and you, you've known about them for a long time. You know some of their personal history, but but now you're kind of going through stuff, you know, and and imagine you're going through this old footlocker, and, and maybe you pull out a dress, and you're like, oh, look at this dress. It's really old, and and it's about eight sizes smaller than Mildred, and um, was it hers or no, you know, and, and, and then you, like, look through a little bit more, and and you see this old photo. And sure enough, it's, it's Mildred and William on their wedding day. October twenty second, 1939. And you're like, oh, wow, look at that. You know, you, you see this and um, you, you're, oh, it's the dress. Mildred's wearing this very dress, you know, and you, and you kind of look at it. And then you dig a little deeper and you know what you find? You find a stack of old letters. What do you do? Well, if you're with me, I'll tell you what you do. <laughs> you, you look around to make sure Mildred's not coming up the stairs, and you pull this little twine that's wrapping you know them together, and you take it apart, and you start looking at these old letters. You pull out an envelope, and what would you do? You look at this envelope. Even you look at it, and you see to whom it's addressed, and 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 who wrote it up in the upper corner, and. And could you really get a stamp for seven cents? I mean, is that possible ever to have gotten a You know, you would look at that. And then maybe you look at the postmark. You know, what, what post office did this come through? Having done all that sort of investigative work, you know what you do next, right? <laughs> you very carefully slide that letter outside of that envelope, and you unfold it, and you begin to read. My dearest William, Oh, you say, this is going to be good stuff. You know you're really excited. And you know who wrote it. It's from Mildred to William. And you get, begin to work through. You know something about history, about the history of the world. You know that in 1939, October of 1939, we are 25 months from the United States entering the Second World War. And maybe you read in the letter, you can tell that William is in basic training. And maybe you feel a bit of the anxiety that Mildred might have felt about her husband going off with the world in such turmoil. You know stuff about your own uh, world history, about their history, and you begin to piece together the, what's going on. We can do the same thing with Paul's letters. I mean, they're the same sort of male. The only difference is, is that someone later discovered that Paul was a very inspired person, and so much so that his letters became so precious that they were included in holy writ. They, were, they became scripture to us. They're very precious, but they began as letters. As you look at Paul's letters, there's a major stylistic difference. The way that they wrote letters in the first century different than the way they write them today. Uh, if you have your bulletin, will you look with me at, at the text, the, the epistle lesson there? 1 Thessalonians, or if you say 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It starts off with with the author, not the way we write, my dearest William. It starts off with with the the person who's writing it. This is the way they did in in the first century. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. There you have it. Boom. Just like Mildred's letter. You know who wrote it, to whom it was written. Right off the beginning. Now, um, in the weeks to come, we're going to discover why it is that Paul wrote that, this letter, and um, we'll get a little bit more of that, why he put pen to paper. But we want to begin with what he thinks about these Christians, because he tells us what he thinks about these particular group of people who live in Thessalonica who are beginning to follow the Lord Jesus. Just a little bit of background. The Christians in Thessalonica are among the very first mostly Gentile population. Up until this point, the church was an almost entirely Jewish. I know that surprises some people. They think there's such a, a, a distinction, but it's not. Uh, among the um, the earliest Christians, most of them were entirely Jewish. But here you have a, a, a population for the first time that is almost entirely Gentile, non-Jews who are becoming um, uh, who, who have turned to the gospel and are following Jesus, and they're just like just like us, men and women, boys and girls. People were baptized. They had church together, probably in homes, they would do the things we would do. They would read scripture, somebody would stand up and give a sermon like I am, they would um, gather for uh, holy communion, they would say prayers, same sorts of things. I imagine that they ate dinners together and they sang songs and they laughed and um, and did the sort of things like everybody does. But Paul writes this letter because he sees in this group of Christians, first of all, something that he wants to point out. And And I want to call these uh, marks of Authentic Conversion. Um, marks of Authentic Conversion. How would people know that these Thessalonians were Christians if, in fact, they didn't know they were Christians? I mean, How would they know that they are authentic followers of Jesus? And Paul tells us, and I think in four ways. The first one, and I'll go through these quickly... Just, you know, you know how it is. Buckle up. We're going to go through this, right? Uh, Well, The first one is that um, they have ethical fruit of conversion. There's an actual change in the way they live. Ethical fruit. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. Look at this. If you had a pencil, you could underline this. Your work of faith. You see that? Your work of faith and labor of love, a second one, and third, steadfastness of hope. I think three ways to sort of emphasize the same thing. Paul will not allow us, not even for a moment, to believe that we can come to faith in Jesus Christ or that we can find salvation by what we do. A person cannot work their way into heaven. They cannot buy their way into heaven. They cannot buy their way into uh, an authentic set of discipleship. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. But, having come to faith, Paul says he expects that there would be authentic evidence of this faith, and the one thing is that there ought to be good works. People ought to be doing good things in the world. Um, the Thessalonians couldn't help but to do good things. They couldn't help but to do be at work in their community. They they were um, they were doing things that were were loving and compassionate for the people, even if it was difficult, and it was often difficult. The the Christians were viewed as rabble-rousers, non-conformists. Some even called them traitors. And yet, these Thessalonian Christians did not go to war with their culture. They instead loved it and, and, and did good in the culture. Just a, a little bit of, of application. I sometimes worry about Christians in our culture who are at war with non-believers. In a culture war. If we are at war with our culture, it ought to be with weapons of love and kindness and compassion. Not sarcasm, not um, attack, not wars of words. Love and kindness. The second thing that that marked, uh, the second mark of authentic conversion for the Thessalonians is this, and I struggled how to label this. Um, My first thinking was, Uh, ontological change. And I thought, no, maybe not go there. Let's do existential change. And I thought, no, let's not go there. We're going to get lost in the weeds of philosophy. So how about this one? Substantive internal change. That is a lot. But a substantive, a real internal change. A change of the heart. A change of the heart is different than a change of the mind. It's not that they were simply convinced intellectually that Christ was true. They came to believe with their hearts. And I know that there's some level of of intellectual satisfaction that people need in terms of of grappling with the Christian religion. But Christianity is not a philosophy, although it is underpinned by philosophy. It is not a theology, although it, it is definitely a theology. Christianity is a relationship, and it is alive. It is a relationship with the living God. And it's not a convincing of people's minds. It is a changing of the heart. And these Thessalonian Christians had a change of heart. Listen to what he says, verse 5. Look at this with me, will you? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Not in word only. In Paul's ancient Greek language, the word for word is lagos. Same root from which we get the word logic. Christianity, it, it, it did not come to them in logic only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, internally changing the heart. Their hearts were changed and they experienced the presence of the living God. Paul says in Romans that, um, that, that that God's Spirit will witness to our spirit that we are children of God, that there will be an, an existential, an experiential moment. We will know that we belong to God. And I think way too often in the church we have settled for intellectual religion. We need good thinkers. We need good minds. We need to shape good thinking. But Christianity is not a, not a change of mind. It's not accepting a philosophy. It's a change of the heart. And these Thessalonian Christians exhibited that. I could spend a lot of time with these. I'm not going to do it. Number three, joy in suffering. Verse six, look at this. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much, much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about You. I don't suffer well. I don't. Um, I do really well with comfort and ease. Um, you know, I can I can handle that. Suffering is not my strong suit. It's not my um. It, it, it's not my uh, my wheelhouse. I whine a lot. If I get a splinter, there might be tears. I mean, there. It's um. I'm just admitting it's a. It, but I've lived long enough, and maybe you have too, to realize that I have learned so much more through affliction and hardship, than I ever did through comfort and ease. I have been changed and formed and made better by difficulty, much more than by um, life without problems. Uh, I was talking to somebody just this week. There's this old hymn. Um, it's, it's just, it, it is literally quotes from Scripture. It's called How Firm a Foundation. Do you remember this? Any of you know this one? How Firm a Foundation, you Saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than to you he has said, To you, who from refuge to Jesus have fled? And then there are two verses right in the middle of this that go like this When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be for I will be with you the troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. I'll make your most difficult moments good for you. The third verse goes like this When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my strength all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That sometimes hardships are, they they make us and mold us and make us different and make us better. And the, the Thessalonian Christians seem to get this. They have joy in their affliction. And they know that what the Lord Jesus said. If anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This way is a way of hardship and suffering. And if anybody told you anything else, they lied to you and were selling you something. The the path of following Jesus is not always rainbows and poppy dogs. Sometimes it is. The fourth one, fourth mark of authentic conversion. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God is going forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. You guys are famous. You're famous in a world without television. (laughs) Your your fame has spread all over. Verse 9, for they themselves, people report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn from God to idols. The fourth mark is turning away from idols. I thought about how Christianity has had such an impact on the world. The Christian faith has had such an impact all over the world that we don't even think about, you know, it seems very primitive to even think about a polytheistic world where people would have little idols, you know. This is like Papua New Guinea or something. Like most, most people who are religious in this world, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, or a Jew, you're monotheist. You believe in one God. If you're religious, you believe in one God almost entirely in this world. But the things that cause people to be polytheists in the ancient world are still present in ours. What did people do with their little gods? What were they for? They were to provide security when you travel. They were to provide security when you went to war. The, The gods were the ones who sent rain so the crops would grow and you would have food. And the gods provided housing and shelter. And we still, we think ourselves immune from the trap of idolatry, and we are not. We turn on the news and it frightens us, and we think, oh, we need a bigger military, more bombs. That'll make us safer. And it won't. Not saying we don't need a military. Not saying they're not doing a great job. They're doing a fantastic job. Love it. Very fan- but I'm saying it doesn't make us safer. It doesn't bring us the security we're looking for. We worry about, about food and we worry about clothing. And we worry about housing and, and how will our kids get into a good college. And, and, and what we need is more money. And money doesn't make us safer and it doesn't make us more secure. I'm not saying you don't need money. You do. But I'm saying the security is not there. And the Thessalonians saw this, and they threw off their idols, and they trusted in God. And said, we're going to believe that God's going to deliver us, and he's going to give us everything that we need. And what about us? Are we there? And so I looked at these marks of authentic discipleship, or what we would call um, authentic conversion. In fact, you could do this. You could call these marks of authentic conversion, or discipleship, or Christianity, or Christianity. What does biblical Christianity look like? Well, at least it begins here. It begins with this sort of genuine faith. So, with these four things, just two quick observations. The first one is this. I think the church in the West, in the United States, the United Kingdom, Western Europe, for far too long has coddled a nominal Christianity, a Christianity that exists in name only. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to make it a little more personal. I too long have done this to allow people to to be nominally Christian. And the great sin isn't that we have weakness in our church, though, in our church um, in in the West is definitely weak. The great sin is not that we have a, a tepid Christianity. The great sin is that we allow people to think that they're Christian without experiencing the fullness of, of the power of the coming Holy Spirit. That they don't get to experience the joy of a genuine conversion. That they can be part of a club. That's a nice religious club where we do great things and meet together every week. That is not... Exactly. It is laughable, isn't it? That we allow that to exist. That's a great sin, I think. And the second thing, then, I guess, is this. It's to turn it and make it just a little more personal. What about you? Have you ever experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your own life? So real, so true, that no one, no matter what kind of philosophy or argument they could bring to you, could talk you out of it. Have you ever been so certain that God is real and with you? Not that everything is going easy. If it has gone easy, you probably ought to be brilliant. <laughs> there's probably something going on. No, but so real, so sure that God is with you, that no one can talk you out of it. There's this um, old gospel song. I, mean, I used to sing it at, at Easter He Lives. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of the song. Okay, I don't like the way it sounds, um, but I do kind of like what it says. It says he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today, and, and then it says, "Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart." That's an argument nobody can take away from you, ever. I was in um, I was in Israel. I'm going I'm, I'm done. But one little story. I was in Israel, and I'm in Jerusalem. And if you walk through the streets of Jerusalem, there are these markets everywhere. There's this this constant selling. They're all religious stuff. You know, you've got your crosses. You've got yarmulkes. You've got menorahs. I mean, every monotheistic religion is being peddled there in spades, all right? And so uh, I walk through these, and, and, um, and I see this little chalice and patent. It's lovely, isn't it? And if you looked really closely, it's like a, it's got the it's got the city of Jerusalem kind of engraved around it, and little little bits of gold and, and you know it's brightly silver. And there's this um there's this merchant who's trying to sell it to me, and they are very aggressive in their sales approach. I mean, they're very very aggressive. And so he says to me, "Oh, look at this," you because know, he sees me looking at it. "Oh, for you, sir, for you only, I will make this special offer for me only." I felt really I, I was I felt really privileged. Um, of all the thousands of people in Jerusalem, I was going to get a special offer. And he says, um, for you only um, $250. And I said, oh, wow, um, $250 for me only. Yes, and he says, oh, and if you'll look right here, it says um, RAS 92.5. That's that's 92.5% pure silver. It says it right here on the back. And you know, if it says it on the back, it must be true, right? It must be 92.5% pure silver, and I was going to get it for only $250. And I said, well, $250 seems like a lot. I am a poor priest, after all. Um, And and, and we went down, and we went down, and we went down, and we stayed for a little while. And I bought this for $50. Um, And I I could have got it for $35 um, if only I had hung out just a little bit longer. If you think this is 92.5% silver, come see me. I'll make you an offer. <laughs> It'll be for you and you only. I was willing to buy a phony silver chalice and patent to remember my time in Jerusalem. I would not, not for every dollar in the world, not for every ounce of power, not for every, every possibility in the world, I would not settle for an inauthentic discipleship. I would not settle for a false conversion. And I hope you wouldn't either. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.